The sermon is from Psalm 101. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. It is from the book of Acts, chapter 11, and verse 26, and it's the last little line of that verse. And the disciples were first called Christians in the city of Antioch. The Gospels have already happened. Christ has walked on earth. The people of God have had the Holy Spirit pour down upon them and empower them. And 11 chapters of Acts have gone by, but the disciples were first called Christians in the city of Antioch. Of what religion are you? Most of you would answer that question as, I'm a Christian. Of what college, what type of college did you go to? If I had to answer that question, I'd say, well, I went to a Christian college, Kentucky Christian College, and the essence of the college is Christian. The book in your hand, friend, what kind of book is it? Well, most likely you would say, well, it's a Christian book. The writer is Christian, and it's about a Christian theme, and so the book is Christian. We use the term quite a lot. In fact, the term is fairly ubiquitous in the church and in culture. Uh, What does the term Christian really mean? Well, we don't actually think about it that much. The term Christian means us. If we are part of the Christian religion, if we are Uh, disciples of Christ, well, we think the term Christian applies to us, and that's really all we tend to think about it. But that is not exactly in line with how the scripture uses the term Christian. You would think, given how often we use the term, you would find the word Christian in scripture a lot. But the truth is, you really don't. Not only is Acts 11 the first place where the disciples are called Christian, it's also the first place in the Bible we find it. The law of Moses has gone by, the history books have gone by, the prophets have gone by, all the poetry books have gone by, Jesus has walked on earth, and no one has called anyone Christian. Until about a decade later, in the city of Antioch, the disciples are first called Christian. And that is the first use of the term, and it's one-third of the use found in the Bible. There's only two other places where the term Christian is used, and they're both in 1 Peter. And so among the people of God at the time of the giving of the Scripture, the term Christian wasn't as ubiquitous as it is now. Uh, You found titles for the people of God that were much more common, uh, they were called the Church of God. Or they were called um, the Disciples of Christ. That shows up several times. Or they were referred to in family terms. Now, brethren, I beseech you, uh, treat younger women like sisters. Uh, Treat older men like fathers. Greet the whole household of faith. This is actually more how the early church spoke about itself, but it did use the term Christian. 
In the way Luke writes about it, there at the end of the verse, uh, he puts a point on it so it feels like it's significant. Uh, You're called Christians, and it first happens at Antioch. This is where this significant event happens. Who called us Christians, and what did they mean by it? I did go to a Christian Bible college, and it was specifically with the uh, independent Christian church. And there, in my many classes, the verse would come up, and they would assure me it was a prophetic statement from God. There in the city of Antioch, God spoke to us, and he said, you know who you people are? You're Christian. Is that who called us Christian? Well, I can't swear to it. There's no biblical passage that actually says that. It's just, we're first called Christians in Antioch. It could be the Christians themselves began to say, you know who we are? We're Christian. Or more likely, and again, none of these things are a slam dunk, more likely it is the people around us, around the disciples of Christ in uh, Antioch, who began calling us Christian. So that is probably where the name comes from. If it is, it's very significant because it means that the worldlings identified us with Christ. Because that's where the term comes from, right? Christian literally means little Christ or of Christ. And the people outside of God's kingdom looked at God's people and said, Really, the only way we can describe these people is everything about them has to do with Christ. Now, why would they say that? Well, it could be they were listening to the church and their preaching, and they understood the term anointing because Christ means anointed. And the people outside the church said, now these people are really anointed. That's very unlikely, but again, none of these things are slam dunks. It may be that the church preached Jesus Christ so much and he came up in everything they said that the outsider said, now these, these people are all about somebody named Christ. We don't really know who he is, but really, honestly, they're, they're about Christ. Or more likely, again, not a slam dunk, but more likely the outsiders looked at the Christians and said, these people are just a little Christ. They're addicted to some itinerant preacher down south. They keep talking about him. They call him Christ. Well, they're just, they're a bunch of little Christs. To be honest, I'm not sure which of these things happened, but it's significant to Luke that here in Antioch, we are now being called Christian. We wear the title of our Lord. Now we don't wear his name. If we were to wear the name of our Lord, then we would be the Jesusist or the Jesus of Nazarenes. But we don't get identified by his name. We get identified by his title, his anointing, and Luke seems to think that that is a very significant thing about us. Whether the world is mocking us or whether the world is praising us or whether it's directly from God himself, it's not outside the possibility, 
It is significant that if you belong to Jesus of Nazareth, you are identified by him in his anointing. To not put such a sharp point on it, you you represent Jesus to everyone around you. In our confession of faith, in our catechism, there is an entire Lord's Day dedicated to really what this is about. It is Lord's Day 12, and it's got two questions in it. And the first one has to do with what it means that Jesus is the Christ. Now, most worldlings today would assume that it's his last name, that Mary Christ and Joseph Christ, you know, they they had a son, Jesus Christ, but that's not how this works. It is a title, and it talks about being anointed, and what does it mean that Christ is anointed? Or, as our question says, why is he called Christ that is anointed? Well, the answer is this. Because he is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption, and our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and ever lives to make intercession for us with the Father, and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit and defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. So if you've been around here longer than a month, you know that I'm about to start talking about prophet, priest, and king. And I want you to be so familiar with that that you recite it in your sleep because it's the very essence of the Christian religion. Before Jesus Christ walked on earth, God anointed certain people. He anointed the kings, and Saul was anointed. He anointed the prophets. Samuel was a prophet of God and anointed. Uh, He anointed the priests, and the priests brought sacrifices from the people into God to make intercession for them to God. These were extremely important offices, and men were anointed to them. Sometimes you had men anointed to more than one. For instance, Jeremiah is an anointed priest, but really his ministry to us today is that he was a prophet, but he was a priest. David was king, and yet he also was a prophet. You never found anyone who had all three anointings, however, until Jesus the Christ. In the Old Testament, there was a promise of one who would come who would be the priest, the prophet, the king, He would wear all three of these anointings. He would be the anointed one. And that is, of course, Jesus the Christ. Jesus ministers to you in Christianity, if you belong to him, as a prophet. He tells you what God's will is. He tells you what right and wrong is. And all through this week, by the way, I've had conversations with different people who have, have, they've all pointed out in one way or another, without God, there's really no definition of right or wrong. Well, Jesus is the prophet. He tells you what is right or wrong. And he tells you God's will for your salvation. He tells you what the covenant is. Jesus is your priest. He brings a sacrifice to, to pay for your sins 
to God the Father, and the sacrifice he brings is himself. He, he dies on the cross for you. He offers his life in exchange for yours. He ministers to you as a priest. And he ministers to you as a king. Jesus Christ lives to protect his church, to protect his people. Uh, he lives to subdue them. Like a king, he conquers his enemies. And all of us at one time were those enemies, but Christ has conquered us. He has given us faith. He brings us into his kingdom, and he ministers to us as king. So when you say Jesus is the Christ, you are confessing that there is one prophet, one priest, and one king. They're all in one man, and he is higher than any other prophet, any other priest, or any other king. He is the summation of what God is doing, and he wears the anointing. He wears the christening. Well, that is all well and good, and it's the very essence of Christianity. But then the Lord's Day goes on in the next question, and it asks, but why are you called a Christian? And the answer here goes back through who Jesus is by his anointing. It goes back through prophet, priest, and king, but it applies it to you. Because by faith, I am a member of Christ. So I've been brought into Christ. I I am in mystical union with him. As part of his kingdom, I'm actually a part of his body. Because by faith, I am a member of Christ and thus a partaker of his anointing. So if I'm in Christ and Christ has been anointed, in some way that anointing applies to me because I'm in the one who got anointed. In order that... I also may confess his name. Now remember, a prophet speaks. A prophet tells you God's will. Uh, He speaks what right and wrong is. He tells you the way of salvation. Well, I share in his anointing that I also may confess his name. So I live in a prophetic way. I'm not the prophet. I'm not a prophet. But when I tell the world the name of Christ, and that includes his reputation and what he's like, that sort of thing. Uh, I'm acting as a prophet, effectively. I am sharing in the anointing of the prophet because I'm in Jesus. That I also may confess his name, may present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him. Now remember, a priest brings a sacrifice before God. Uh, Well, I'm in Christ. I'm, I'm wearing his anointing. And I offer sacrifices even this moment, but it's not the kind of sacrifice that Jesus brought. He bought my redemption, but I offer him sacrifices of thankfulness. And this has to do with what I do and what I say, how I live, uh, the worship I bring on the Lord's Day, all of that. Uh, It's all an offering to God, and it's from thankfulness. So I act priestly in that regard. And then... And with a free conscience may fight against sin and the devil in this life and hereafter in eternity reign with him over all creatures. So that's king. That's kingly language. As bearing my Lord's anointing, being in him, I am not a king and certainly not the king. But since I am in him, I partake of his warfare against sin and evil, against the devil, 
and I am called actively to participate in that. Because my king is at war, and I am in my king, I too draw the sword, I wear the armor. Uh, We're going to see that armor and those weapons in chapter 6 of Ephesians. I am at war with sin and the devil. And our catechism doesn't say where that warfare takes place, because quite frankly, that warfare takes place everywhere. I am at war with sin and the devil in me, first and foremost, but I am also at war with sin and the devil literally everywhere I look. If you see sin and if you see the devil and you're a Christian, what is your duty? It's your duty to be at war with it. So as a Christian wearing his title before the world and being known by his title, I've got ministries to do that equate to my Lord's ministries. He is a prophet. I will proclaim who he is. He is the priest. I will offer him thankfulness and acts of of gratitude. He is the king. I will fight against sin and the devil wherever that is found. I believe what I just said. I believe that wearing the name, the, the title of Christ means that this is my calling. And I think that it is in this light that we should look at our psalm for this morning. The psalm is Psalm 101, and we have sung it many times. And I've even preached it once here. It is a psalm of David. That's what the inscription says. And uh, it's a kingly psalm. David is is lifting praise to God, and he is going through what it means to be a faithful king. And you can see that in the very first uh, verses. I will sing of mercy and of justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. The king is given to God's church specifically for mercy and justice. The Hebrew terms are covenantal terms. One of them is hesed. Uh, It talks about the the faithfulness the king should have to his people and the faithfulness that a vassal king should have to his over king. And mercy talks about how the king is to care for the people. The king is in power not for his own good and glory, not to aggrandize himself and build himself up, but he is the king to care for the people under him. And also, if he's a vassal king, uh, he walks in the mercy of his higher king. The higher king has called him to be a king, and in that mercy, he conducts his, his ministry. So David is singing to God about what it means to be the king. And having uh, announced that in that first verse... Uh, he begins to, to, to walk through what that means for him in every aspect. In verse 2, uh, paraphrasing, but if you look at verse 2, it's, it's what he's saying. He says, I'm going to live in justice and mercy, and it's going to be in my outer behavior and in my heart. I will behave wisely in a perfect way. So, I've mentioned justice and mercy. That's going to be the essence of what I do. And I'm going to do it 
quote, perfectly. Now, no human being ever gets anything perfect, but if you don't aim for perfection, you're going to hit a lot lower than if you do. And David says, I'm king, I'm supposed to walk in these things, I'm going to walk in them with all my emphasis, my outer life is going to be about that, and I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. So it's not just going to be an outer call, I'm not just going to wear my anointing, uh, but as a job that I can put off when the day is done, I'm going to walk outwardly as king, and inwardly it's going to be an essence of my being. Uh, And quite frankly, ministry is like that. If God anoints you for a ministry, it's not like any other human endeavor. Uh, Someone can say, you know, I drive a truck, but that's not the essence of me. I'm I'm something different. Um, I'm uh, I'm a lineman in, in the factory, but that doesn't define me, and it doesn't. But if God anoints you for his purposes, uh, that's defining. It goes right to the heart. And David says, I take it to heart. Uh, I'm going to to be king. I'm going to do it with all my heart and in all my actions. And then he begins to talk about what needs to happen if he's going to do that. In verse 5 through, in verse 3 through 5, and also in verse 7, David begins to talk about holiness, and it's, it's a very practical statement about holiness. It's who he will not keep around him. Verse 3 is kind of generic, but it doesn't just apply to people. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. So there is something wicked, and I'm not going to look at it. I'm not, not going to look at that. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. I'm totally against it. It shall not cling to me. So if I'm, if I'm looking at wickedness, if I'm considering it with the eyes, eventually it's going to latch on to the inside. It's going to take hold of me, and it's going to become like a parasite and begin to weaken and destroy me. So I'm not going to look at it. I'm going to totally hate it, uh, and it won't get a hold of me. And then in the next couple verses, he talks about specific kind of people. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. Now, living beings have hearts. And so he's saying, in my circle of acquaintance, if you have a, quote, perverse heart, or the way we sang it was a froward heart, it means a heart that is duplicitous like a snake. Uh, Everybody knows what a snake in the grass means. It means someone that is hiding his evil and he's going to bite you when you don't see him. Well, that's really kind of what this image means. If there's somebody like that, I will not have them in my friendship circle. I will not be advised by people like that because that is actually wickedness, which is the biblical word for being a predator. Someone like that is willing to hurt and destroy other people. They're out of here. I'm the king. I've got people around me advising me, and I really don't need that kind of person in my life. And then in verse 5, whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. So if there's somebody out there talking about people behind their back to hurt them, uh, I'm going to oppose them greatly. And I'm the king, and if, if I'm the king and I, quote, destroy you, that's kind of significant. 
uh, a slanderer, a backbiter, it's no small issue. It will work its way into the entirety of the kingdom. Uh, it will weaken the kingdom and destroy it from within. So as king, I'm going to put away a slanderer. I'm not going to have him. Um, the one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. So in my acquaintance circle, I will put away all the very prideful and haughty people who think too much of themselves. Uh, that's not going to be in my friendship circle. And then jumping over verse 6, he goes back to the same theme and says, he who works deceit shall not dwell in my house. So if you've got somebody out there who is scheming and doing secret evil things, I don't want them. They may look like they're succeeding in their connivory, but I don't want to be attracted to that. I don't want to get caught in that. I don't want it to become part of me. And the only way to have that away from me is to take the person and cast them away. I'm not going to have them in my circle. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. So it's not just slander, but if someone is a liar, um, I don't want them. A, a liar is going to tear everything down. If you are surrounded by lies, you don't know what the truth is. And you end up with no foundation. So uh, as king, if I'm going to, to, to be the king for God's people, these kind of people got to go. They, they're not going to be my circle. In verse 6, he talks about the people who will. Verse 6 says, My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. So who is the faithful? They are the people who have faith, who trust in God, and that comes out in actions of faithfulness. They are people who are obedient to God, as king, if I'm going to serve God's people, I need to have the legitimate around me. I need to have the people who walk the walk, talk the talk, think the thoughts, are the real deal. My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. So I'm going to look at the people who do the faith. It is not a matter of works righteousness to say what you do is what you believe. It really is. If you want to know what a man believes, look at what his hands do. Look at the fruit of his life. Look at what he produces. Now, he may talk pretty. He may be able to say the right words and he may know the Reformed faith backwards and forwards. But if you want to know what he believes, look for what he does. And David says, as king of Israel, that's the kind of person I'm going to have around me. That's the kind of person who is going to advise me. I'm going to make up a, a circle of advisors of those people. And then in the last verse of the psalm, he describes the major focus of what the king is supposed to do, early I will destroy all the wicked of the land that I might cut off the evildoers from the city of the Lord. The king wears a sword. That's his anointing. He is to protect the people of God. He is to protect 
the land of God, the city of God, the kind of people he's putting out of his friendship circle is exactly the same kind of people he's supposed to drive out of the land. Those wicked people should not be in the promised land. They should not be in the city. As king, I'm going to run them out. There's a new marshal in town. That's the essence of my anointing. I'm going to protect the holiness of the church of God. That's what I do. And so we come to the end of our psalm. There is an interesting pattern if you look at it. Verse 1 to 2 equates to verse 8. In verse 1 to 2, David talks about faithfulness and walking in mercy as a king. In verse 8, he gives you what a king does. So these these equate. There is an equation between verse 3 and 5 and verse 7. In one section, he talks about the people that he's going to get rid of. In the other section, he talks about the people he's going to get rid of. And then in verse 6, there's no equation. And if you look at the chart I'm making, it's right in the middle. Oh, very good. There is a, there's a reason for this. It's a, it's a form of Hebrew poetry. It's, it's what's called a chiasm. The word chiasm refers to an X. And if you look at it, you've got A and A, B and B, and C, and C is right in the middle. When, when Hebrew poetry is written like this, they are directing you to the middle. It's the most important point. Now, it's not that the other points aren't important, but this is the center of the poetry. And so David is singing really about holiness, and he is singing about the positiveness of drawing to himself faithful people, believing people, people who live the gospel in action, that is the main point of his song about being king. Will he succeed in his kingship? Well, the most important part of his kingship is going to be surrounding himself with people who will draw him to excellence, who will draw him to faithfulness. That is the heart of this message. And it's a kingly psalm. So, in what light should we consider the psalm? Well, first off, David wrote it, and he's a king, and we ought to consider himself. David's ministry was as a full-blown king. He was the king of Israel. David falls. David crashes and burns. Now, God is faithful to him and still upholds him, David is the king of promise. We heard in 1 Samuel, God would make a a man of his own choosing king. He is a king that receives promises. God tells him that if you're faithful to me, you will never fail to have a, a son on the throne. And then in the book of Jeremiah, the promise is even widened, where God says, I will advance the promise. I will choose a descendant of David who will be the king forever. So David is very much, very specially a king, but David crashes and burns. When does David crash and burn? When is the the moment of the destruction? If you know David's life, you know it's at a time when kings are supposed to go out to war. 
in the history books, that's how the, the narrative begins. If you're king, well, the spring has come, and this is when warfare can happen, and you as king are supposed to be out there warring. You're supposed to be with the troops. You're supposed to be fighting the battles of the Lord. But David doesn't go. David says, you know, I think my men can handle this. I'm staying in the palace. I am not going out with the warriors of Israel. I'm not going to be among the army. I'm going to be by myself. And what happens when David is alone, when he has not gathered to himself men who will hold him accountable and push him to be a faithful servant? What happens? Well, he has time on his hands, and he has a very tall house, and he's able to look down on other houses, and his neighbor is sunbathing in the nude, and you know the rest. This is the fall of David's ministry. Everything after this is going to be under a perpetual curse of God. David did not surround himself with the faithful of the land. He did not live in their company. He did not walk beside them. He put them away. He wrote the psalm. God gave him to know the truth. But knowing it and walking it are two very different things. We should consider this psalm also from the point of view of the great David, the true king. Israel has a king now, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. He is spiritually among us. He is here more than you are. He is, in fact, more significant than any of us, and he is the king. David can talk about walking in a perfect way, but for him it's only a goal. He's not going to hit it. But the current king of Israel will walk in perfection. The words that our Lord Christ said to us as he was getting ready to ascend to heaven uh, were these. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus is king of the church, and everything you see in Psalm 101, Jesus is doing. He is walking in faithfulness and in mercy. He is uh, working for the holiness of his kingdom. He is driving from the church of God, the unfaithful, the wicked, those who have worked their way in. Jesus is daily driving them out, uh, and he is surrounding himself with the faithful. I mean, that's what's happening, right? The Lord Jesus Christ is drawing men to himself. He is giving them eternal life and making them faithful, and that's who he's walking with this very moment. So when you sing Psalm 101, you're really singing about what Jesus is doing, and he is drawing you to himself. You are the faithful. You are the ones he is giving spirit to walk, and he loves to be around you. I will be with you always. Always. That's what our king has said. And unlike his ancestor David, Jesus of Nazareth will never fall. 
So this psalm is a, a glory. This psalm is a promise that you can latch hold of. Jesus Christ will be with his people as king. You can take it to the bank. He will be your king. But as we went through our confession, we noted that we are in Christ. And being in Christ, we partake of his anointing. So as we look at this psalm, we can also look at it from the point of view of our own lives. We're not king, but our king has gone to war and he is with us. We are to fight against evil and the devil all the days of our lives. Well, how are we to do that? Well, we are to walk in hesed, covenant faithfulness and mercy. We are to be in the hands of God purifying the church, working for reformation. We are to be driving from our lives those people who, quite frankly, will draw us into hell's maw. Uh, You know what happens when you put people of various moral levels together? They all descend to the lowest common denominator. So if you want to walk as a hypocrite, if you want to walk weakly, If you want to walk in defeat, if you want to look no different than worldlings, just surround yourself with people with deceitful and wicked hearts. That will get the job done. But we are walking in the Lord's anointing, being in him, so we are purifying our lives from those kind of people, and we are surrounding ourselves with faithful people who walk in God's ways. If we're going to share in that anointing, if we're going to win the battle against sin and the devil, whether it's in our own heart or in the world around us, we are going to walk in holiness, and that holiness will have teeth. It will mean there are people that you would like to be attracted to, but that's the flesh, and honestly, you don't want it. You want to walk with the faithful, you want to walk with the godly, Because you've got a job to do, you are anointed with the Lord's anointing, and he is at war, and so are you. This is not a theme that is simply here. If you start going looking for it, you'll find it especially all over the Psalms. Psalm 16, for instance... O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord, my goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. That's just one example, but there are several. God calls us to band with the faithful, that is of the essence of holiness. And if you're going to fight the Lord's battles in the world, you're going to have to have a certain exclusion for who is your buddy. It it seems counterintuitive, but if your best friend is a worldling, you can't win the worldlings. The faithful are all my delight, because they belong to God, and all my goodness comes from him. So, naturally, I will band with them. Now... I mentioned that I preached this a year ago. I did. It was actually a sermon that connected this with Psalm 110, and it didn't quite do what I'm doing now. 
But generally, I would not preach a passage so close together. I'd let several years go by. But I've had kind of an, an epiphany, a kind of a, 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 I understand it better. There is a line in Psalm 101 that I never really got, and that is in verse 1 or 2. Uh, where did I, oh, there it is. Uh, it's actually in verse 2. I will behave wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? Now, I've always read this psalm and heard that as a plaintive cry. I've pictured David now ascending to the throne, and all the duties of the throne are on his shoulders, and he feels like he doesn't have the power to serve God, and he is begging God to come and empower him. That's not actually what it's saying. This is a kingly psalm, and in verse 1 he has talked about mercy and justice, and he's going to walk in mercy and justice, and it's going to be inside and out as a vassal king, because David is not the true king of Israel. When when the people demanded of God, give us a king, God did not say to them, okay, you have a king, so I'll step back and no longer be king. God never ever said that, He allowed them to have a king, he gave them a king, but he never abdicated the throne. Saul and David are vassal kings. And so when a vassal king says, I'm going to walk in his sed, and I'm going to walk in mercy, is he talking about how he is going to relate to the people under him, or is he talking about how he is going to relate to the king above him? Well, the answer is it could be either, and it depends on context. But in this particular context, David is saying, Lord, I'm confessing to you. I'm going to tell you how I'm going to walk. And you are my king. I'm a vassal king. I'm going to walk in faithfulness and obedience to you. You are the king over my kingship. I walk in your mercy. I would not be king unless you made me king. You have entered into covenant with me. I am going to walk faithfully in your covenant. And I'm going to do so with the knowledge that occasionally you're going to drop by and judge how I'm doing. Because that's what over kings do. The emperor comes to the king under him from time to time and says, open the books. Show me the kingdom. Tell me what you've done. The greater David talks about this in Luke chapter 12 verse 35 to 37 and 42 to 47, where we read this. Uh, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. I assure, assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And then jumping to 42. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? 
Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, then the master of the servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him a portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself to do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. That's the spirit in which David says, oh, when will you come to me? Now, we know that God is everywhere and he is seeing everything. But paradoxically, covenantally, there come seasons where God has kind of let things go, but at that moment of his choosing, he comes and he judges. Have any of you experienced this? Where you know that God has taken hold of you, opened up your life and said, open up the books. Now I know everything, but this is the time of testing. Let's see what you've done. It will happen. The king will come and ask, what have you done in your kingdom? You share the anointing of Christ. You are anointed to fight my battles. I have given you a place in the world to fight them. Let's see how you're doing. That's what David's saying. He's saying, Lord, I know that I walk as a vassal to you. I walk in your mercy. Uh, The people under me are vassals to me, and they walk in my mercy. And I know you're going to come and examine one day, and I don't know when it is. So, Lord, I'm going to walk in integrity whether you're here or not. Because you choose the day of examination. You choose the day of test. And when you come, I'm going to be doing what you want me to do. That is wisdom. We are not saved by walking in obedience. But we are told that Christ has saved us to be a peculiar people, to be different, to walk in his way, to fight his battle. And God takes that really, really seriously. And he will come and he will examine And if you are betting it's not today, you are taking a fool's bet. It may not be today, but it may. What will God's testing spirit find if he opens your books today? Will he find you walking in faithfulness? Will he find you walking with his people, caring for his kingdom, putting out of your life those people who are destroying you? Or will he find you eating and drinking and getting drunk with those people and not walking in your anointing? David says, I have no idea when you're coming, so I am going to be faithful. May God give us such a spirit.